from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Before our worship begins, I'd like to share with all of our members and friends a little bit about our financial situation. Regrettably, our projection for year-end reveals a deficit of $420,000 on our $5.7 million budget. While we've worked diligently to manage our resources and expenses, giving in 2022 and 2023 have fallen below expectations. I assure you that our trustees, session, and financial team have thoroughly explored all options to mitigate this situation. If we are unable to bridge this financial gap, difficult decisions will need to be made. This could include budget cuts, which might impact various aspects of our ministry, including a potential reduction in personnel for the year 2024. However, we believe that as a community bound by faith and shared values, we have the ability to overcome this challenge. And so I call upon each member and friend of First Pres to consider how you might be able to contribute to our financial strength. If you've already given in 2023 and have the capacity to go the second mile, please give more. If you've not given in 2023, please give today. You can mail a check, give by credit card, uh, give by stock transfer, or use the QR code that will be on the screen in just a few moments. Our congregation has had a successful capital campaign, securing pledges of over $36 million. Our ministries with children and youth are bursting at the seams. Our worship attendance, both online and in person, are strong. Our community ministries continue to serve our most vulnerable neighbors and friends with compassion and great care. Our staff is strong, gifted, and committed to serving the mission of the church. My hope is that our giving will increase uh, to support the strength of our ministry in this season of our life together. We will continue to communicate openly about our financial progress and any developments that we have as we move forward. Please keep our congregation, our leaders, and our shared mission in your prayers. If you have any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. And thank you for tuning in to this week's broadcast. Heal now the word of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man run its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, 
the commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Calicia. Psalm 19 and the passage from Philippians that I'm about to read are both from the lectionary for today. The lectionary is that three-year cycle of preaching and teaching that gets us through most of the Bible, if you were to follow it over the course of three years. And it gets us an opportunity to hear today from this part of Scripture. Our second Scripture reading is from Philippians 3, verse 4 through 14. You can find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 187. Continue to listen for a word for you and for me. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or that I have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God 
in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, through your Holy Spirit, you have spoken to peoples long ago. Your Holy Spirit spoke through your servant Moses and through the servants, the prophets. It spoke through Jesus and Jesus's mother and his aunt Elizabeth. It spoke through the Apostle Paul and the other leaders of the, true, of the church. And so now, O oh God, may that very same spirit animate these ancient texts that they might become for us, living and active, that we might be a changed word from having heard these words and wrestled with these words and lived with these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you know that I recently returned from walking the last 117 kilometers of the Camino de Santiago, a ancient pilgrimage route that has been around since at least the 700s. Along with my wife Janelle and four members of the church where she serves, we spent six days on this sacred path. Along the way, we walked through forests and farmlands, through housing developments and small villages, until we arrived in the famous city of Santiago just over two weeks ago. Needless to say, it was a powerful experience. The landscape was gorgeous, the food and the drink were great, it was a physical challenge, it was a physical accomplishment, but it was also a powerful spiritual experience. And it was a wonderfully communal experience as well. We shared meals together, we told stories about our families and our work and our faith. It was a journey for sure. And I'll be honest, when I opened up the lectionary text for this week as I was preparing for this sermon a, a week or two ago, I was really, really, really hoping that there would be a passage about journeying or traveling. After all, there is a lot in the Bible to choose from. There's a lot about travel or about pilgrimage. You may remember that the people of Israel wander from slavery in Egypt until they eventually reach the promised land. Then hundreds of years later, they are they're forced to migrate to the land of Babylon, where they are held in captivity and experience exile. We see this similar pattern of, of travel in the New Testament. Jesus and his family travel to Jerusalem after his birth for his dedication, and they make similar trips back and forth to Jerusalem for a great number of religious festivals and celebrations. If we think about the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel in the New Testament, much of that narrative framework is determined by Jesus going up to Jerusalem and coming back down, going up and back, up and back. 
Jesus travels a lot in the Gospels, and so does Paul. The book of Acts, nearly half of the book of Acts, reads like Paul's travel log as he journeys from one location to the next in Asia Minor and throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. There is a lot of travel, there's a lot of movement, a lot of pilgrimage, we could say, in the Bible. It's no surprise then that for hundreds of years, the Christian life itself has been likened to a journey. We're traveling, we're on the way. I think we could actually say that at, it, at the very basis, fundamentally, the people of God are a people on the move. And so as I was thinking about what I might say in our sermon this morning, I had movement and travel and pilgrimage on my mind. And as I was reading these texts, I found myself drawn to this passage from Philippians. It has a lot to say about the journey of faith and about travel, but perhaps not exactly what I was looking for. You see, there's a great irony in this text from Philippians. Paul is stationary. Paul, we learn, is in prison. Paul is prohibited from moving, and yet he says he keeps pressing on. He keeps pushing forward. Paul, we see, keeps pressing on even when he is stuck. And I think that these ancient words to an ancient community in the first century hold both a challenge and a comfort to those who, like me, may easily relate to the feeling of being stuck. If you're familiar with Paul and his letters and the narrative of Acts, you know that Paul traveled a lot. If there was Delta in Paul's day, he would certainly have access to all of the lounges. <laughs> Scholars have reconstructed at least three major missionary journeys in Paul's life. There might have been more. Paul was driven by this desire, this ceaseless desire to start and nurture communities of faith that were shaped by this narrative of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He preached the good news of God's redeeming love that, that erased all social status markers. He labor, labored so that Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, men and women could eat together at the same table could interpret scripture and wrestle with scripture together, and together would witness to the new age begun by Christ's resurrection. And despite all of this focus on community development and community nurture, Paul didn't hang around all that long. He'd start a community, he'd give it a little attention, he'd nurture it a little bit, and then he was off off to another city, off to another community, off to another set of problems because problems followed Paul just about everywhere he went. And he would use his existing communities or his co-workers that he knew as something of a springboard to bring this message of good news to the furthest corners of the world. 
In one of Paul's latest letters, the Epistle to the Romans, he writes of his desire to go to Spain, the very same country that I visited two weeks ago. And the reason Paul wanted to go to Spain was because that was it, y'all. That was as far as the world went in the ancient world. He was going to go to the end of the world as he knew it. He had to go. Paul continued to think and pray and write to these communities, but he was always on the move. He was always pushing further. He was always looking for the next city to visit and the next community to start. But this ever-on-the-move Paul is stuck as he writes Philippians. He is, as I said earlier, in prison. He writes earlier and often about his imprisonment in Philippians. And we can't know for certain exactly when or where Paul was in prison. This wasn't his first time, and it might not have been his last time in prison. And when you or I hear prison, we may think of a heavily fortified, heavily guarded prison like the one that's just a couple of miles away from my house at the end of Boulevard Avenue. It's more likely, though, that Paul was under some form of house arrest, more severe than grounding your teenager for missing curfew, but not as dehumanizing as many of the prisons that we've become familiar with in our own age. This house arrest would have allowed Paul to have regular contact with the outside world, both through letters and in-person visits. But have no question about it, Paul was stuck. He was under the watchful eye of Roman authorities. His freedoms were limited. He couldn't travel. He couldn't do the very thing he felt put on this earth to do, to travel, to start new communities, to go to new places, and announce the good news of God's transformative grace. Paul was stuck. And I suspect at least some, if not many of us in this place this morning, know what it's like to be stuck. Maybe we're not stuck in a prison like Paul, but we know what it means to be stuck. Maybe you feel stuck at work. You feel the limits. You feel trapped by a structure that doesn't allow growth or development. You feel limited by workplace politics or conflict. You feel as though shrinking budgets or a reduced workforce keep you from doing the work that you were called to do. Or you may just feel stuck by a profound sense of exhaustion or burnout. Or maybe you feel stuck in a relationship, stuck in a fraying marriage or a fractured relationship with a a parent or a sibling or even a neighbor. Maybe you feel stuck in a cycle of grief or resentment, stuck in feeling lonely and forgotten and overlooked. Or maybe you feel stuck in your own body, facing a life 
life-altering diagnosis or the loss of mobility or perhaps just the slow loss of independence. Or maybe, just maybe, you feel stuck spiritually. Your old familiar spiritual practices aren't working like they used to. God feels distant or absent altogether. Your prayer life has fallen flat. Scripture seems cold and unfamiliar. You might struggle to really believe that God is making all things new when the rhythms of the world around you play the same old tune of violence and death, dehumanization and division, exclusion and shame. Paul was stuck, and I have a sense that we know what it's like to feel stuck, too. So the surprising thing about this text is that for all of Paul's stuckness, for all of his feeling stuck, he writes so enthusiastically about pressing on, about moving forward. We might say, Paul, you're stuck. What could you possibly be moving toward? What is the goal that Paul is moving toward? I think that the, the broader context helps us eliminate at least a couple of options. The first is, I don't think Paul is pressing on to found or start another church. The larger letter of Philippians indicates that Paul is actually quite pessimistic about that. That season of his life has come to an end. He's not expecting, maybe not even hoping, that he'll go to another community. I think he's also not pressing on or moving forward in the direction of freedom of being released from his imprisonment, from his house arrest. For Paul, getting unstuck, pressing on, is not necessarily about changing his circumstances. I think we get the clearest indicator of the object of Paul's striving in verse 14, when Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God, in Christ Jesus. At first glance, it seems that Paul is pressing on towards some otherworldly reality, as if he is pressing on towards heaven, as if heaven or, or the heavenly call of God would escape him, would provide him with some sort of escape from his stuckness. But again, I, I don't think that that's right at least not entirely. Earlier in the letter, Paul has been clear about one thing. Paul has said, as much as I would love to depart this life and go be with Christ, it is better for me to stay here. It is better for me to remain on earth. It is better for me to continue in the work that is here even if that means staying in prison. He insists that it's more valuable to keep writing to other Christians, to keep welcoming gospel co-workers, and to keep doing the work of ministry, even when he's stuck. The brilliance and the challenge of Paul's reflection is this. He's not pressing on toward a new set of circumstances, 
or to some heavenly bliss in the great by and by. He's not pressing on towards a destination, but rather towards a transformed character and a transformed perspective. And I would suggest that there are three movements of Paul's pressing on. First, he presses inward. He says that he wants to be found in Christ and to know Christ. He strives to root his identity not in a laundry list of his accomplishments, not in his best or worst actions in the past, but in what Christ has done for him. His desire to know Christ relativizes all of his other commitments and achievements, even his most upright and religious. He knows or strives to know that who he is has been determined not by his circumstances, not by his efforts, not by how much he produces or how much he makes, but by God's deep love and transforming grace. Second, Paul presses upwards. Paul speaks of knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, and I think that these words are about more than just hope in the afterlife, although they certainly include that. They're about Paul's fundamental orientation to the world and to his circumstances. If God has really raised Jesus from the dead, if the tomb is really empty, he knows that God can do far beyond anything that he could ask or even imagine. Yes, this may include his eventual release from prison. Yes, it means hope that he'll be present with God after death. But it's more than that too. Believing in resurrection power means imagining and living in response to a world that has been transformed by God. Imagining that any wall of hostility has been destroyed, any separation based on social status or religious difference has been eliminated. It means imagining a new world of God's long-awaited promises to Isaiah, that swords will be turned into plowshares, that lions will lay down with lambs, and that people will stream from east and west and north and south to come together at one big party at God's banqueting table. Finally, Paul presses outward as he presses on. He wants to share in the sufferings of Jesus and become like Jesus in his death. Now, this might suggest to some that Paul is saying, I want to die in the very same manner of Jesus, in that brutal and, uh, and, and terrible form of death known as crucifixion. But I would suggest that the opposite is true. I, I think Paul is saying, I want to live in the very same way that Jesus lived, all the way up until my death. I want to offer my life in self-giving love for the sake of the world. I want to empty myself of all privileges and accolades so that I can serve like Jesus. Paul presses on to become more and more like Christ 
even and especially when he's stuck. Paul is stuck, but he keeps pressing on. He moves inward, reminding himself of his true identity in Christ. He moves upward, trusting in God's resurrection power, and he moves outward, living and serving like Jesus. And maybe these movements of Paul pressing on can say something to our own experience of being stuck. They certainly speak truthfully that sometimes we can't change our circumstances, at least not as quickly or as fully as we wish, no matter how hard we try or how well we strategize. Too often, our stuckness depends on people or circumstances outside of our control, situations that we are simply unable to change. And so like Paul, we can move inward, we can move upward, and we can move outward as we press on even when we feel stuck. Now, all of these movements about Paul and his pressing on, I'll admit, sound very individualistic, as if the only thing that matters is Paul's relationship with God, and by extension, our individual relationship with God. But I think that that's not the whole story. I would say that one of the reasons that Paul can continue to press on in the manner that he does is because he has surrounded himself with a community of care, with a community of co-workers. Just as much as he moves inward and upward and outward, he also looks around. And when he looks around, he sees his friend Timothy and his friend Epaphroditus. He sees his co-workers Euodia and Syntyche. He sees Clement and his other friends in the faith. Paul is not alone, and he leans into his community in order to keep pressing on. I want to close this sermon with one final story from the Camino that I think reflects some of this looking around and leaning in to our community. Of the six days that we were on the trail, our first two days were the longest days, uh, both above 15 miles. And at the end of the second day, one of our travelers began to experience significant knee pain in the last mile or two of the day. By the third day, she needed to visit a local pharmacy to get some anti-inflammatories and a new knee brace. Days four and five were slow, painful going for her along the way. And so as we sat at dinner the night before our final day of walking, none of us were sure if she would be able to continue. But we got up the next morning and there she was, backpack in tow, ready to walk the last day of the Camino. And she did, she did make that final 13-mile journey of the Camino, and we all made it with her. That day, our group stayed in closer proximity than we had any of the previous days. We stopped more frequently. We certainly walked more slowly. 
And we each took turns talking to this member about our work or about ancient philosophy or about anything in order to help distract her from the pain and persistent ache of her knee. It was slow journeying, but she pressed on, and we pressed on together. And that, that memory, that image of the six of us hobbling down the hills into the city of Santiago is a reminder of what the church is supposed to be at its core. We're not in this alone. We're not meant to journey or to press on in isolation. We are called and we are graced to travel together. As we press on individually in our own ways, we lean into each other collectively. We all know what it's like to be stuck. May God give us all the strength and the perspective to press on, to move inward, to move upward, to move outward, and to look around, to see and to lean into this broken and beautiful community that is hobbling together toward the goal of God's call and claim on all of us. Amen.